Hello and welcome to GradCast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. I am your host, Sharon Mander. And I'm Anna Moyer. And we are here with Scott Walters. Thanks for being here, Scott. Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks for having me. Hello, so welcome to the show. So to start off, can you tell me a little bit about yourself and what you study? Sure, yeah, no problem. Um, so as you said, my name is Scott Walters. I am a PhD candidate in the biology department here at Western University. And I look at how water associated birds, that's birds that live in aquatic habitats, use different food resources and see how habitat connectivity plays a role and how valuable those food resources are able to acquire are in their life history. All right, so I got a question for you because uh, you said aquatic habitats. Uh, so is that like a lake or a pond or they kind of like marshes and things like that as well? Could you like describe or like give an example of an aquatic environment or habitat? Absolutely. All those things would be an aquatic habitat as I'm thinking about them with these birds, definitely. However, what I'm looking at is I'm looking at mudflats. That's uh, these broad, expansive areas on coastlines generally and in estuaries. And I'm also looking at rivers. Okay, so when you're looking at these these birds, what is your main research focus and what are you trying to ascertain in your research? Yeah, so I am interested to see how food that is available in these environments might change because of different effects, either because of damage due to past human activity or just a lack of connectivity for other reasons. So for instance, on the mudflats, uh, not all mudflats are made the same. So some have conditions that allow for food resources to have developed differently is our hypothesis. And so the quality of that food, and I'm interested in certain components, I'm specifically interested in fats. Some of those fats might be better because they have more of a marine source in them than others. And in rivers, different past disturbances to those sites may have disallowed certain nutrients to evolve there. So it really has to do with how much availability there is of more valuable versions of fats and other nutritional resources that these birds are trying to eat. So I'm trying to get at how do we look at these birds? How do we look at the prey they have available to them and see how different examples of rivers and different examples of mudflats that are in the same general area differ in their ability to provide important resources for their life history requirements. Okay, so I don't know if I'd ever be able to point out what a mudflat is. So I don't know if I've seen one, but where would you go to find out? Where are you going to these mudflats? Sure, so <laughs> all of my research is actually out on the West Coast. So the mudflats, uh, those areas are out in British Columbia. So some of the mudflats are in the Vancouver area in general. And then I have another set of mudflats that are even further more coastal in Tofino area, which is a small township on the coast of Vancouver Island. So mudflats, if you haven't seen those, they're, well, you can kind of think of them like beaches, except that beaches, of course, are, people generally think of those as made of sand. And so mudflats are just finer material. Instead of sand, it's just mud. And they tend to be a little bit, well, less sloped. They are a little bit flatter just because of the type of wave action that is there. And a lot of birds, shorebirds is what I'm looking at out there, they love mudflats because traditionally we always think about these birds foraging in these environments by sticking their long bills into the mud and getting different types of invertebrates, different bugs and stuff like that 
to feed themselves, especially when they're doing important uh, life history um, modalities such as migrating, because shorebirds are one of the birds that migrate vast distances. And so it's very important for them to get the food from the mudflats as well as sand beaches in order to power that flight energetically. Are there any specific species that you're looking at and what would their diets look like? Yeah, definitely. So I'm looking at Western sandpipers in particular, and then I have a couple comparison species that are similar, but these are small uh, sandpipers. They're one of the smallest around in the world, actually. And what their diets have been thought of for a very long time is just little invertebrates, like I said, little bugs, if you will, underneath the surface of the soil. However, in the not too distant past, it actually was discovered that even though we always thought that that's all they ate was different types of invertebrates, they're actually slurping biofilm from the surface. And so biofilm, what is that? That's this goo that sort of just sits on the surface in different parts of mudflats when the conditions are right. It's this polysaccharide matrix that coats microorganisms, coats diatoms. So these little diatoms, which are unicellular organisms, they're excreting this as a colony and it coats them and it protects them from the intertidal environment because that's a very harsh environment when you think about it, right? You're underwater twice a day, you're exposed suddenly to this incredibly caustic environment that we as humans, we've evolved to deal with all this oxygen, which is very damaging, but most, most life on this planet hasn't. And so they excrete all this biofilm and it paints a slick surface coating of a lot of mudflats. So anyway, we found that these birds are slurping it up with specialized tongues. And so the question sort of arises, why? Why are they eating all of this biofilm in the first place when they have all this perfectly good food under the mud? And so that's, for that study project, for that area of my research, that's kind of becomes the big question is, is it because of certain things like fats, which has a pretty key synergistic mechanisms that are occurring with the environment out there at certain locations, is there something to do with the fats that really help these birds coming from biofilm versus those fats coming from invertebrates? All right, so I'm gonna have to have you back up slightly because I'm curious what you mean by special tongues. Yeah, absolutely. So birds in general tend to have pretty long little tongues that they stick out, especially uh, shorebirds. But on Caledrus sandpipers, which are little ones, like the Western sandpiper and Dunlin at least, they have just little ridges that are on the top of their tongues that have been found to be able to attach and adhere to the mucousy type biofilm and slurp it up. They almost... <laughs> There's a really good illustration in a lot of papers, but basically they kind of curl their tongue as it's coming up and it creates sort of a funnel uh, that's sort of like a straw in a certain way, as well as grabbing and pulling the biofilm into, into their face and just getting it in there as quickly as possible. Where other shorebirds like Dunlin, they have a little bit of it, but they don't, they're not able to eat the biofilm as effectively. And so something that's interesting is it does appear that the birds that have these sort of characteristics on their tongue are eating a greater portion of biofilm. Now, are there any differences between the birds who are sort of more biofilm dependent and the ones that aren't? Like, uh, is there another food that those other birds are eating instead? Mm, that's a good question. I would say 
in general, the main difference besides those morphological differences of the tongue and features like that would probably be where they are feeding. The, like the Westerns tend to feed not as far out. They all come in very close to shoreline when the tide comes in, because that's all that's exposed. But as the water goes out, certain species only go out so far. They're not interested in going further and further out just because the water exposes more mudflats. So Western sandpipers in particular only go about, uh, in, on average, they only don't go much further than about 300 meters out. And so biofilm being photosynthetic is part of its life history, uh, it tends to be closer inshore. And so I think part of that is just because that's where the biofilm is. And so they stay further in. So it's more of a behavioral thing that I would say is different. Otherwise, they have a lot of characteristics that are similar to one another other than, again, their tongues. Okay, so I gotta know, are you camping out in these mud flats just like watching the birds or are you doing something else or like? <laughs> yeah, that's a great question. So yeah, so part of what we have to do when I'm doing this study is I actually am collecting samples, not just of this biofilm and other prey, but I am actually collecting samples from the birds. So yes, I have to go out there to these mud flats and other sites I work with in order to set up what are called mist nets. These are nests that, you know, when you look at them dead on, especially if there's not a lot of sunlight, they're pretty much invisible. So the idea is to set them up in areas where you highly suspect the birds are going to be flying for one reason or another, and then they will fly in, get caught, and you can take the birds out and process them as you need to. So in my case, out in BC where I'm doing this work, um, yeah, we go out at night to increase our chances of the nets not being seen since they're in the wide open areas and there's not forests and trees to kind of hide the nets as well. And we will be out there for hours, you know, but it really has to do with when the tide is right. We're trying to set up the nets before the tide comes in or just before it goes out and the water actually moves the birds back and forth. And that's kind of allows us to know where the birds are going to be when. And we catch the birds, we take them out and we get the samples from them at that point. Wow. So this is quite an endeavor to collect. How many birds have you collected, do you think, over the, the course of the study? Oh, man. Yeah, it's been, uh, let me think. So between, I did two years of collecting shorebirds in various locations. So if I was put all of them together, uh, I would estimate I probably have collected around somewhere between 200 and 250 birds. So was it easy to catch these birds or was <laughs> it like... <laughs> uh, no, I mean, when it works on that night, it's, it's kind of easy, right? But, but in general, the overall process altogether is not easy. No, it is not at all. There's just a lot that goes into it. Uh, you have to coordinate with tons of people to get it working. And then also, this was all occurring during COVID. So there's very little research being allowed to happen. And we had to work with a lot of people from the government, which also weren't allowed to go in the field in general. So it was working with a lot of contractors, with ourselves, changing schedules last minute and conforming to certain uh, practices that were good. It increased safety, you know, during the pandemic, but it did definitely, you know, make things more difficult. Um, you also have to be very concerned first and foremost with the safety for the birds. You know, in the case of this study, you know, my, my modality is such that I take samples from the birds and then I release them. So they continue their life history and continue to migrate and do all this stuff. Um, and so it's, you always want to be careful with birds anyway, but you especially want to be extra careful since they have to 
survive this encounter and be in a state that's good for continuing on this massive uh, migration journey that I mentioned before. And they're going up to all the way to Alaska and they've started from South America. So we're just interrupting them partway through uh, to see how they're powering that flight. But we don't want to interrupt them and then you know, disrupt them to the case that it's going to decrease their chance of survival afterward. So this is a bit of a two-part question, which is number one, do the birds kind of have to bulk up the same way that you'd see animals like maybe hibernate where they have to kind of get a, a good resource pile before they start their journey? And number two, is there any effects from climate change or anything like that that we're seeing in the birds migration recently? Sure. Well, I will have to admit that I am not an expert on hibernation physiology, but <laughs> in order to compare, but I can talk in general about how they're, how they're bulking up. Uh, and so what I'd say is, yeah, they are bulk up like insane very quickly and they're just eating. That's all they do when they're awake and they have the ability to eat when the food is available. When they're on stopover during migration, they are trying to eat as effectively and as quickly as possible to put on as much fat on themselves to power their flight, whichever way they're going, especially when they're heading north, because they're going up to compete for sites, for breeding sites. So they're going really fast then. So anyway, they are just pound packing on the pounds like nothing we would ever do, and more than a lot of mammals do, I believe. And so they're just, they will build up such huge fat repositories that you can see it through the skin and all over their body when they're being successful. And then they fly to the next location and you catch them and it's all gone you know, are mostly gone because they've, they've burned through it so quickly. So you're telling me that we need a fat bear week instead of fat bear week, we need fat shorebird week. Yes, definitely. Yeah. To, to follow on the second part, which is that uh, was, uh, was there any effects from climate change on this migration? Have we seen any differences in their, their patterns? I mean, I, climate change has been affecting migration for birds, you know, worldwide, I'm sure in, in the case here, one potential risk of climate change, I would say, in this particular study is there's the idea that this biofilm could be potentially being affected by climate change, you know, and it's because it's exposed to the sun for a certain amount of time and certain compounds that get created with by the diatoms within the matrix that they're protecting themselves in, it changes based on what sort of like protective components and compounds they need within within that structure to protect themselves from the increased uh, solar radiation and heat and so forth. And, and so the idea is that I'm not sure if we've really been able to suss this out yet, but basically the other compounds that are in there may be changing in their quantity and so forth, such that the trade-off between that extra protection might make it so that the food resource itself has just a different nutritional value than what it would otherwise. And so if it turns out that this biofilm is indeed an essential food resource, that's that's kind of the big question that we're asking here, uh, climate change could play a role there. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm still stuck on you trying to catch these birds. Yeah. Uh, so you said you do this at night. Mm -hmm. And you said also that it depends on which way the birds are going. So I assume it'll be like, depending on the year you're looking at, it could be really dark at night. So how do you navigate that? Right, so, well, we're, we're doing it at night so that it's dark. So okay. it's a decrease. So we wanting it to be dark. 
it's always pretty dark out there because we're away from like the middle of the city. And mm-hmm. I should I should say I catch the shorebirds at night. The other birds I work with, the river birds, I'm catching during I'm catching during the day, like in most studies. Not everybody who works with shorebirds does it at night. We did in this particular case just to sort of increase our chance of success. How we navigate it is we're setting up the nets and we're walking away from those nets for short periods of time and then coming back and checking on them with headlamps. Uh, towards the end of the season, Environment Canada uh, got us some cool tools. So eventually we were actually using like thermal cameras. So we could look at the mist nets from a distance and see if there were little tiny glowing bodies in the mist nets. So as soon as we saw one, we could run out there right away to decrease the amount of time it was in the nets. But uh, we did regular checks at least every 20 minutes, just in case anyway, in case the goggles weren't picking them up. This definitely makes me kind of wonder what got you into this area of research? Oh, that's a great question. I've been, so with birds, I've loved birds for a very long time. I think birds and some other wildlife, but particularly them kind of are what brought me uh, into science. As far as these questions about uh, nutrition, I've always really been interested in what is it that animals are taking from their environment to allow them to perform better, survive better, what gets them through. And then from that, it's just sort of naturally evolved that as humans have been making all kinds of changes and, and changes that happen that aren't even directly necessarily because of people happen and, and habitats and environments change, how does that change what's happening to the animals? And so I think it's just been something going out camping and my whole life and watching things, I always just been curious. And so uh, I think habitat, has always been such a big part of it for me because I'm, I'm in love with the environments themselves as well as the animals. Okay, so when figuring out nutrition and stuff, you're saying you catch the birds and you want samples from them. Uh, I was curious, what kind of samples are you looking for? Yeah, absolutely. So, so from um, the shorebirds, primarily what we're doing is we're taking a blood sample. So I take a small blood sample from their wing And then I spin that down so I can separate it out with red blood cells and plasma samples. And the reason we're doing that is from plasma, I'm able to look at fats uh, within the bird. So I'm able to compare that to the fats that I'm seeing in the environment because I also take samples from the mud flat from the invertebrates there. And I take samples from the biofilm there so I can kind of compare do the fats look more similar to biofilm or to invertebrates when I'm looking at it in the birds. And then I'm also from that same plasma able to look at the stable isotope uh, signal. So, you know, if you happen to know what isotopes are, they basically allow us to sort of trace things within the environment components to see kind of how animals move as well as what they're eating. And so I can look at the plasma to see, kind of estimate how much of different types of foods a given bird was eating. So by doing this, I can compare that between the different sites I'm interested in, because we're trying to see is certain, are certain sites distinct in their advantage that they give to these migrating birds. For instance, in the areas that I'm working, there's one site in particular called Roberts Bank where they're thinking about developing in a very big way. And if they do so, it's very possible that they could eliminate this site, which is somewhat, which is quite a bit different than the other sites because as a massive exit of the Fraser River Delta there. So the fresh water that exits there every spring really changes the chemistry of the biofilm. And we think it might make it, so it has a lot more fat in it that's valuable for the birds. 
So uh, have you found any differences so far between the sort of seafaring versus the river birds at this at this stage? No, at this stage, we're, uh, we're still analyzing. We've collected tons of samples of all types, and we are in the lab right now currently undergoing that work. So as of yet, we are staying tuned. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I have a question. Uh, yeah. So we talked a lot about the mud flats. Uh, where are you doing the river research, and how is that like different than the mud flat research? Is it harder? Is it easier? It's... Right, yeah. Well, they're both... They both have their challenges. I would say the rivers are, you have to be more careful. You're working in moving water in both, but you're working in really crazy rivers. Uh, well, in the fall, it's not too bad, but in the spring, there was really high flow rivers up to your chest with water that just melted from the ice. It had been ice a couple hours ago. So it was really intense and really fun, but that particular challenge is a lot. Another difference is for the mud flats, you can drive to them for the most part where for the rivers, sometimes you're hiking in for hours. Uh, and a couple times I had to do overnight trips down deep in the woods to get to spots. So that's kind of how it is different in the sense of, of difficulty, I suppose. How it's different as, as a question is that we're looking in a freshwater environment versus a marine environment. But the thing that's linking them is when I'm talking about these different nutritional components I'm interested in. I'm interested in fats specifically, like I said, but we're really interested in marine derived fats, fats that are in one way or another coming from the ocean. So that's somewhat obvious when we're talking about biofilm on the surface of mud flats out on the coast. In the rivers, sometimes people get confused what I'm looking at there. And what I'm talking about there are fats that are coming upstream into these rivers from fish that are coming up, returning from the ocean. On the West Coast, we have the Pacific salmon coming up. And so these salmon are introducing fats into the rivers there. No, I don't want to sound too much like your advisory committee, but uh, <laughs> where do you see this project sort of going in the future? Or what are some of the, the sort of impacts that this study could have? Absolutely. So in the case with the Roberts Bank question, or I'm sorry, that's the mudflat question, there is a big sort of very contentious <laughs> debate about whether or not to expand the current port of Vancouver. That's where a massive amount of the goods and services from Asia, for instance, come into this country. And so, you know, there's obviously a certain economic pressure to have that occur. The most convenient and expedient way to do that would be to expand the current port to be at least probably more than double its size, but it would just so happen to go on the mudflats we're looking at. So that's an important decision to be made by you know, the Minister of the Environment and even Trudeau. And so it needs to be considered on multiple levels. And so there's a number of projects working in tandem. One of them is though, we have things happening here. I've caught shorebirds that have come back here to, to campus that we fly and, and other people in my lab see how well these fats work with them in ideal situations. But we also have to know, is the environment providing these things? So my research is asking, does the environment out there at Roberts Bank provide a distinct type of food resource that we're seeing may affect their ability to migrate better? Because that would be very important when we decide whether or not we're going to impact that habitat in particular. In the case of the rivers, one of these rivers had a massive dam on it. It actually had two massive dams and they were removed in the not too distant history. Uh, and it was the largest dam removal project this world has seen to date. There's going to be bigger ones coming up, 
that are planned, but so far that's it. And so if we show that salmon coming in are advantageously affecting these birds because of their fat resources or other resources, that can kind of show the value of that sort of restoration because it's relinking habitats that are upstream of dams that were blocking it. In this case, it was blocked for a hundred years. You know. And in that case, the previous research that's sort of ongoing with what I'm doing has already shown that birds in areas where they had access to anadromous fish, that is, that is fish that go back and forth between the ocean and the freshwater in their life, they found that those birds were 20 to 50 times more likely to make a second nest throughout the year than the birds that didn't have access to that. So we see a big performance there. So I'm looking at what are the physiological and nutritional reasons why we may have seen that and sort of verifying it's actually from the fish and not just the ocean in general where they're getting those compounds in their diet. Okay, so if I may take one step back, uh, you said that the fish from upstream bring the nutrients you want to see. How does that work? Are the birds you're looking at big enough that they eat the fish or are they like, I'm confused. Yeah, you know, the answer is yes and no, uh, okay. because the birds I'm looking at are songbirds. So they're kind of thrush-like in size. So like an American robin-like mm -hmm. in size, which maybe you know what that is. And, and so they're not gonna be able to eat a big salmon, which can be like half a meter or more, you know? Uh, but what they can eat is they can eat the fry, the salmon babies and they can eat the eggs. But even more than that, they can eat the things that eat those. So they can eat all the invertebrates and aquatic emergent insects that are feasting on those. They can also eat smaller fish that eat, also eat the eggs and eat decaying salmon because salmon die after they spawn. And so they will eat the carcasses. So basically the whole idea is that these salmons come upstream and they just produce, their bodies produce a massive pulse of food resource that wasn't there before they got there. Cause they come up in hundreds or thousands depending on the health of the system. And these fish will come back and just load the whole watershed with a whole bunch of food from the ocean that wasn't there before. So you can sort of imagine if there was a river that evolved to be that way, what happens if you shut that off and now those fish can't come upstream and they're not there available for the native wildlife. Wow, sounds like this has some serious consequences for the future and even decisions of, you know, uh, these giant um, construction sort of projects. So sounds like a really amazing research project. So sort of as like a last question, where do you see yourself going in the future with your research? What do you, what do you want to do after you finish this project? That's a great question. You know, that's uh, one of those things I ask myself a lot myself too. <laughs> so I do want to definitely continue working with birds and their habitats and what they need to continue surviving and meeting their life history goals. And so I, th I think that's a combination of continuing a part of this research, uh, both with the American Dippers, that's, that's the bird in the river. I have long time established collaborations with them and there's more questions down the line to work with that for sure. I'm also interested in seeing how there's sort of nuances with migration. You know, I'm working with migration in the case of the sandpipers, and I'm, I'm planning to expand that out to other species as well and seeing how they molt and other life history behaviors that they really are necessary to their survival 
where they go. I'm, I'm interested in sort of also shifting to look at what are the movements and how can we use that isotopic analysis I mentioned earlier to sort of derive where they're moving, what habitats they're using and how important they are. So those are sort of a couple of the places I'm considering for my uh, first postdoc. That's all been really interesting. And I have learned a lot. Uh, for a second there, I was wondering if you were a fish guy and not a bird guy, but uh, <laughs> we, went, we got back to birds. Yeah. Uh, we're almost out of time. And if anybody wants to reach you, we'll put your email down in the description and you could just ask your questions and any, anything like that. This has been Gradcast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. I've been your host, Sharon Mander. My co-host was Anna Moyer, and we've been speaking with Scott Walters. And this episode was produced by Emily Hutchinson. If you would like to be involved with the show or get in contact with us, email us at gradcastradio at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at Gradcast Radio. To listen to us, we are on Radio Western 94.9 FM. You can find all our episodes on our website at gradcast.ca or on podcast apps like Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Thank you for listening and have a great day. Bye.